It's Sunday Showcase on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance recommended. And now, with the conclusion of this week's Sonic Summerstock Playhouse, Mr. David Alt. Welcome back to Sonic Summerstock Playhouse 13. If everyone could take their seats, we will now continue with Act 2 of Pete Lutz's adaptation of the Herman Wook play, The Kane Mutiny Court Martial. This is the BBC. Sunday Night Theatre, The Kane Mutiny Court Martial. Act 2. Attention. Defense, present your case. I call the accused. Does the accused request that he be permitted to testify? I do so request, sir. You have the right to do so. You also have the right not to take the stand. If you don't take the stand, that fact won't be to your prejudice. If you take the stand, you may be subjected to a rigorous cross-examination. I understand that, sir. Court stenographer will affirmatively record that the statutory request was made. You do solemnly swear that the evidence you shall give in this court shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. I do. State your name, rank, and present station. Stephen Merrick, Lieutenant USNR, Executive Officer of the USS Kane. Are you the accused in this court-martial? I am. What was your occupation in civilian life? Helping out in my father's fishing business. We own a couple of boats. Where? Here in San Francisco. Then you were familiar with the problems of ocean-going ship handling before entering the Navy? Well, I've been on the boat since I was 14. Did you relieve the commanding officer of the Kane of his command on 18 December 1944? I did. Was the Kane in the last extremity when you relieved the captain? It was. On what facts do you base that judgment? Well... Several things, like, well, we were unable to hold course. We broached two three times in an hour. Broached two? Yes. Uh, wind and sea took charge and tossed us sideways for ten minutes at a time. We were rolling too steeply for the inclinometer to record. We were shipping solid green water in the wheelhouse. The generators were cutting out. The ship wasn't answering to emergency rudder and engine settings. We were lost and out of control. Did you point these things out to the captain? Repeatedly for an hour. I begged him to come north and head into the wind. What was his response? Well, mostly a glazed look and no answer, or a repetition of his own desires. Which were what? I guess to hold fleet course until we went down. Mr. Merrick, when did you start keeping your medical log on Captain Quig? Shortly after the Kwajalein invasion. Why did you start it? Well, I began to think the captain might be mentally ill. Why? That yellow dye marker business. Was that the incident in which Captain Quig acquired the nickname Old Yellowstain? Yes, it was. You witnessed the occurrence yourself? I was navigator. I was right there on the bridge. Describe the Yellowstain incident, please. Well, it was the first morning of the invasion. We were ordered to lead a group of attack boats into the beach. That is, we had to take them to their line of departure 1,000 yards from the beach. These little boats lay so low in the water, they couldn't see to navigate for themselves. They needed a guide to make sure they hit the right island and the right beach. 
Captain Quig ran up 10 knots and we started to head in towards this island. It had a funny Japanese name. Our code name for it was Jacob Island. Well, it was a choppy sea. These assault boats could only make five or six knots. And at that, they were shipping solid water and the Marines were getting just about drowned in spray. They began to fall way behind. Naturally, they signaled for us to slow down, but the captain just ignored them. We pulled further and further ahead until we could hardly see them. Then when we were about 2,500 yards from the beach, we heard some gunfire. Captain suddenly yelled, we're running up on the beach, reverse course, make 30 knots. And while we were turning, he threw over one of these yellow die markers you use to mark water where there's a floating mine or something. So we went barreling out of there, leaving this big spread of yellow all over the water behind us. Now, Mr. Merrick. Court wants to question the witness. Lieutenant, how do you know you were 2,500 yards from the beach when you turned? Sir, I was navigating. There wasn't a doubt in the world where we were by visual plot. And our radar range to the beach was also 2,500 when we turned. Did you inform your captain that he was turning 1,500 yards short? Sir, I shouted it at him over and over. He just stood there smiling. You say these boats signaled you to slow down? Yes, sir. By semaphore. Was the signal reported to your captain? I reported it myself. Was he aware of the fact that you were running away from the boats? He was looking right at them, sir. I pointed out that if we got too far ahead, the boats wouldn't know where the line of departure was. That's when he said, well, we'll throw over a die marker then. Defense will proceed. Mr. Merrick, why didn't you go to higher authority at once with your doubts about the captain's mental health? I figured if only I'd had a record, I'd be on stronger ground. So I decided to start the log. I figured if I was ever all wrong, I'd just burn it. I kept it under lock and key. What, in your view, made an incident worthy of record in your medical log? Just any act that seemed strange or abnormal, like the Silex business. Describe the Silex business. A mess attendant slopped coffee on a Silex and burned it out. None of the others would admit which one did it, so the captain ordered all the officers of the ship to sit as a court of inquiry till we found out who burned out the Silex. It went on and on for 36 hours. All ship's work stopped. There we were, all of us in the wardroom, dying for sleep, needing shaves, and still trying to find out which of those poor young stewards burned out the Silex. By then, those kids thought whoever did it was going to get hung. They would have died before telling us. So finally, I had to go to the captain and tell him that all the officers admitted they were incompetent investigators and couldn't find out who slopped coffee on the Silex. So he made a note in his black book and called off the inquiry. Things like that. Or, or like the water business. Describe the water business. It's all in the log. How we cut off water at the equator for two days for the whole ship. Just because he caught one simple deckhand stealing a drink during water conservation hours. Or plain crazy things like the strawberry business. Describe the strawberry business. Well, there... Objection. The so-called medical log was introduced in evidence at the start of these proceedings. All this is just repeating a lot of trivial disloyal gripes. If the court concurs, I'll pass over the medical log. Well, let's not take up time here. Aye, aye, sir. Only... There seems to be some confusion about this so-called strawberry business. It started out as a search for a quart of strawberries, didn't it? Yes, sir. Then it somehow became a search for a key. That's right. How was that? 
Well, that was on account of the cheese business. Cheese business. I don't recall any cheese business. That was on the first ship Captain Quig served on, sir, when he was an ensign. Cheese had been disappearing from ship's stores. He investigated and caught a sailor who had made himself a duplicate key to a padlock on the refrigerator. Well, for catching this cheese thief, the captain had gotten a letter of commendation. This was peacetime. Naturally, he was real proud of it. When this strawberry thing came up, he insisted it was the same thing. And all we had to do was find out who had made a duplicate key to the wardroom icebox. But of course, it was the mess stewards again. We all knew they'd eaten up this quart of strawberries. It was just the leavings from the wardroom mess, and they were entitled to eat it. That was the custom. But naturally, when the captain started to roar around about those strawberries, why, the boys just froze up and swore they hadn't eaten them. And the captain, he was so steamed up on this key theory, he believed them. So he ordered the search for the key. Yes, sir. We never saw Captain Quig so happy before or since. He was living the cheese business all over again. He organized the search himself. All ship's work was suspended. We collected every single key on the ship. Boxes of keys. Barrels of keys. About 2,800 of them all tagged with the owner's name. Then, to make sure we had them all, we searched the ship from stem to stern, from the crow's nest to the bilge, we stripped the crew stark naked, every one of them, shook out their clothes. We searched their lockers. We crawled into every hole and every space in the ship for three days, and all of it over a key that never existed. Well, when I saw Captain Quig sitting by the icebox, taking those keys one by one out of the barrels and trying them on the padlock hours on end with a gleam in his eye, I gave up. That's when I showed the medical log to Lieutenant Kiefer. Mr. Merrick, when Lieutenant Kiefer finished reading your medical log, what was his first comment? Sir, uh, I'm afraid I don't remember. Did he encourage you to go to Admiral Halsey? I did that on my own responsibility, sir. But he went with you to the New Jersey? He did, sir. So at first, he didn't discourage you? Well, sir, when we got aboard the New Jersey, he discouraged me. He said we shouldn't go through with it, and we didn't. Would you say his testimony on the subject was substantially correct? Yes, sir. It, it was all my doing, sir. All right. Mr. Greenwald. Mr. Merrick, when the typhoon was over, did Captain Quig make any effort to regain command? Yes. On the morning of the 19th, the storm had blown out. We'd just sighted the fleet. Describe what happened. Well, I was in the chart house writing up a dispatch to report the relief to Admiral Halsey. The captain came in and said, do you mind coming to my cabin and having a talk before you send that? I went below and we talked. It was the same thing. At first, about how I'd be court-martialed for mutiny, he said, you've applied for transfer to the regular Navy. You know this means the end of all that, don't you? Then he went into a long thing about how he loved the Navy and had no other interest in life. And even if he was cleared, this would ruin his record. I said I felt sorry for him, and I really did. Finally, he came out with his proposal. He said he'd forget the whole thing and never report me. He would resume command, and the whole matter would be forgotten and written off. What did you say to the proposal? Well, I was amazed. I said, Captain, the whole ship knows about it. It's written up in the quartermaster's log and the OOD's log. Well, he hemmed and hawed and finally said it wouldn't be the first time a pencil rough log had been corrected and fixed up after the fact. Did you remind him of the rule against erasures? Yes. 
And he kind of laughed and said it was either that or a court-martial for mutiny for me and a black mark on his record, which he didn't deserve. He didn't see that a few penciled rough lines were worth all that. What followed? Willie began to plead and beg. He cried at one point. In the end, he became terrifically angry and ordered me out of his cabin. So I sent the dispatch. Then you had the chance, 24 hours later, of expunging the whole event from the official record with the captain's knowledge and approval? Yes. Mr. Merrick, were you panicky at all during the typhoon? I was not. Now, Lieutenant, you're charged with relieving your captain willfully, without authority, and without justifiable cause. Did you relieve Captain Quig willfully? Yes, I knew what I was doing. Did you relieve without authority? No. My authority was Articles 184, 185, 186. Did you relieve without justifiable cause? No, my justifiable cause was the captain's mental breakdown at a time when the ship was in danger. No further questions. Mr. Merrick, this amazing interview in which the captain offered to falsify official records, were there any witnesses to it? We were alone in the captain's cabin. No. This incident at Poggelain, did anyone else see this chart, which, according to you, indicated your ship turned away from the beach too soon? About an hour after it happened, the captain asked to see the chart and took it into his cabin. When I got it back, all my bearings and course lines had been erased. Then you have no documentary corroboration of this story? No. How about the radar men who called off the ranges? Won't they confirm your story? Sir, you can't expect them to remember one single radar range when they called them by the thousands in every invasion. These poor abandoned Marines and the assault boats never complained to a higher authority of the dastardly conduct of the cane? No. Strange. Sir, they landed against machine gun fire. The ones that survived, I don't think they remembered much else besides that landing. Mr. Merrick, who coined this scurrilous nickname, Old Yellowstain? Well, it just sprang into existence. Throughout the ship, or just among the officers? Among the officers. You were sure you didn't coin it yourself? I didn't. Mr. Merrick, what kind of rating would you give yourself for loyalty to your captain? I think I was a loyal officer. Did you issue a 72-hour pass to Stillwell in December 43 against the captain's express instructions? I did. Do you call that a loyal act? You admit to a disloyal act in your first days as executive officer? Yes. Mr. Merrick, what kind of course did you take at college? Business course. Any pre-medical courses? No. Any psychology or psychiatry courses? No. How were your grades at college? I scraped by. Below average? Yes. Where did you get all these highfalutin ideas about paranoia? I, out of books. What books? Name the titles. Medical type books about mental illness. Oh, was that your intellectual hobby, reading about psychiatry? No. Then where did you get these books? I borrowed them off ship's doctors here and there. And with your background, your scholastic record, did you imagine you understood these highly technical scientific works? Well, I got something out of them. What is a condition reflex? I don't know. What is schizophrenia? I think it's a mental illness. You think so? What are its symptoms? I don't know. In fact, 
You don't know what you're talking about when you discuss mental illness, is that right? I didn't say I knew much about it. Haven't you ever heard the expression, a little learning is a dangerous thing? Yes. You got a head full of terms you didn't understand, and on that basis, you had the temerity to depose a commanding officer on the grounds of mental illness. Is that correct? I didn't relieve him because of what the book said. The ship was in danger. Never mind the ship. We're discussing your grasp of psychiatry. Have you heard the diagnosis of the qualified psychiatrist who examined your captain? Yes. What was their diagnosis? Was he crazy or wasn't he on 18 December? They say he wasn't. But you, with your whining gripes about strawberries and silex, is no better. Mr. Merrick, who was the third-ranking officer on your ship? Lieutenant Kiefer. Was he a good officer? Yes. Do you consider his mind as good as yours, or perhaps better? Better. You showed this medical log of yours to him? Yes. He wasn't convinced by it that the captain was mentally ill? No. He talked you out of trying to have the captain relieved. Yes. And yet, two weeks later, despite the whole weight of naval discipline, despite the arguments of the next officer in rank to you, a superior intellect, despite all this, you went ahead and seized command of your ship. I relieved him because he definitely seemed sick during the typhoon. You still imagine your diagnosis of Captain Quig is superior to the doctor's? Only about Quig on the morning of the typhoon. No more questions. No re-examination. You may step down, Lieutenant. Call Lieutenant Commander Quig. Commander, the oath previously taken by you is still binding. Yes, sir. Commander, on the morning of 19 December, did you have an interview in your room with Lieutenant Merrick? Let's see. That was the day after the typhoon. Yes, I did. Was it at your request? Yes. What was the substance of that interview? Well, as I say, I felt sorry for him. I hated to see him ruining his life with one panicky mistake, particularly as I knew his ambition was to make the Navy his career. I tried as hard as I could to show him what a mistake he had made. I recommended that he relinquish command to me, and I offered to be as lenient as I could in reporting what had happened. You never offered not to report the incident? Well, how could I? It was already recorded in the logs. Were the logs in pencil or typed or what? Well, that would make no difference. Were they in pencil, Commander? Well, let's see. Uh, probably they were. Uh, quartermaster log and OOD rough log always are. I doubt the yeoman would have gotten around to typing smooth logs and all the excitement. Did you offer to erase the incident from the penciled logs and make no report at all? I did not. Erasures aren't permitted in penciled logs. Lieutenant Merrick has testified under oath, Commander, that you made such an offer. Not only that, but you begged and pleaded and even wept to get him to agree to erase those few pencil lines, in return for which you promised to hush up the incident completely and make no report. That isn't true. There isn't any truth in it at all? Well, it's a distortion of what I told you. My version is the exact truth. You deny the proposal to erase the logs and hush up the story? I deny it completely. That's the part he made up. 
and the weeping and the pleading. That's fantastic. You are accusing Mr. Merrick of perjury? I'm not accusing him. He's accused of enough as it stands. You're likely to hear a lot of strange things from Mr. Merrick about me. That's all. Isn't one of you obviously not telling the truth about that interview? It appears so. Can you prove it isn't you? Only by citing a clean record of over 14 years as a naval officer against the word of a man on trial for a mutinous act. Commander, did you ever receive $110 from Lieutenant Junior Grade Keith? I don't recall offhand that I did. He testified that you did. I did? On what occasion? On the occasion of a loss of a crate of yours in San Francisco Bay. Oh, yes, I, I remember it now. Uh, it was over a year ago, December or thereabouts. He was responsible for the loss and insisted on paying, and so he did. What was in the crate, Commander, that cost $110? Oh, uniforms, books, navigating instruments, you know, the usual. How was Keith responsible for the loss? Well, he was boat officer and in charge of the loading. He issued foolish and contradictory orders. The men got rattled and the crate fell into the water and sank. A wooden crate full of clothes sank. Well, there were other things in it, I guess. I had some souvenir coral rocks. Commander, wasn't the crate entirely full of bottles of intoxicating liquor? Certainly not. Keith has testified you charged him for a crate of liquor. Oh, you'll hear plenty of strange distortions about me from Keith and Merrick. They're the two culprits here, and they're apt to make all kinds of strange statements. Did you make this crate yourself? No, my carpenter's mate did. What was his name? I don't recall. It'll be on the personnel records. He's been gone from the ship a long time. Where is this carpenter's mate now, Commander? I don't know. I transferred him to the beach at Funafuti at the request of the Commodore for a carpenter. This was back in May. You don't recall his name? No. Was it Carpenter's Mate Second Class Otis F. Langhorn? Lang. Langhorn. It sounds right. Commander, there is a Carpenter's Mate First Class Otis F. Langhorn at present in Damage Control School at Treasure Island right here in the Bay. Defense has arranged to subpoena him if necessary. You're sure it's the same one? His service record shows 21 months aboard the cane. Your signature is in it. Uh, would it be useful to have him subpoenaed, sir? Objection to this entire irrelevancy about the crate and request to be stricken from the record. The credibility of the witness is being established. I submit to the court that nothing could be more relevant to this trial. Overruled. Stenographer, read back the last question. Would it be useful to have him subpoenaed, sir? Well, it's a question which crate Langhorne nailed up. I had two crates, as I recall now. Oh? Well, this is a new angle, not mentioned by Keith. Did Langhorne make both crates, sir? Well, I don't recall whether I had both crates on that occasion or two crates on two different occasions. It's all very trivial. It happened a long time ago, and I've had a year of combat steaming in between and a, a typhoon and all this hospital business, and I'm, I'm not too clear. Commander, there are many points in this trial which turn on the issue of credibility between yourself and other officers. If you wish, I will request a five-minute recess while you clear your mind as well as you can on the matter of these crates. That won't be necessary. Just let me think for a moment, please.
Okay, I have it straight now. Uh, I made a misstatement. I lost a crate in San Diego Harbor back in 38 or 39, I think it was, under similar circumstances. That was the one containing clothes. The crate Keith lost did contain liquor. Was it entirely full of liquor? I believe it was. How did you obtain a crate full of whiskey, Commander, in wartime? Bought off the rations of my officers at the wine mess in Pearl. You transported this liquor from Pearl to the States in your ship? Do you know the regulations regarding... I'm aware of the regulations. The crate was sealed prior to getting underway. I gave it the same locked stowage I gave the medicinal brandy. Liquor was damn scarce and expensive in the States. I've had three years of steady combat duty. I gave myself this leeway as captain of the cane, and it was a common practice, and I believe rank has its privileges, as they say. I had no intentions of concealing it from the court, and I'm not ashamed of it. I simply mixed up the two crates in my mind. Keith testified, Commander, that you gave all the orders to the boat crew, which caused the loss of the crate. That's a lie. Also, that you refused to sign his leave papers until he paid for the loss. That's another lie. It seems to be the issue of credibility again, sir. This time, your word against Keith's, correct? You'll hear nothing but lies about me from Keith. He has an insane hatred of me. Do you know why, sir? I can't say. Unless it's his resentment against fancied injuries to his crony, the, the sailor Stillwell. Those two were mighty affectionate. Affectionate, sir? Well, it seems to me every time Keith thought I looked cross-eyed at Stillwell, there was all kinds of screeching and hollering from Keith as though I were picking on his wife or something. And those two sure ganged up mighty fast to back Merrick when he relieved me. Commander, are you suggesting there were abnormal relations between Lieutenant Keith and the sailor Stillwell? I'm not suggesting a thing. I'm stating plain facts that everybody knew who had eyes to see. Does the court desire to caution the witness about the gravity of the insinuated charge? I'm not insinuating a thing, sir. I don't know of anything improper between those two men, and I deny insinuating anything. All I said, Keith was always taking Stillwell's part, and it's the easiest thing in the world to prove, and that's all I said or meant. I resent the twisting of my words. Are you going to pursue this topic? No, sir. Very well. Go ahead. Commander, during the period when the cane was towing targets at Pearl Harbor, did you ever steam over your own tow line and cut it? Objection. This tow line business is the last straw. The tactics of the defense counsel are an outrage on the dignity of these proceedings. He's systematically turning this trial into a court-martial of Commander Quee. Sir, the judge advocate has made it perfectly clear that he thinks he has a prima facie case in the report of the two psychiatrists. But I say it's still up to the court, not to shorebound doctors, however brilliant, to decide whether the captain of the cane was mentally well enough to retain his self-control and his post during a typhoon. The objection is overruled. The witness will answer. Read back the question. Commander Keg, during the period when the cane was towing targets at Pearl Harbor, did you ever steam over your own tow line and cut it? Okay, now, uh, here's the story on that particular slander. I started to make a turn when I noticed some anti-aircraft bursts close aboard the starboard. I was gravely concerned that my ship might be within range of somebody's firing. We were in a gunnery area. 
I was watching the bursts. Well, the same sailor, Stillwell, a very dreamy and unreliable man, was at the helm. Now, he failed to warn me that we were coming around the full 360 degrees. I saw what was happening, finally, and instantly reversed course, and I avoided passing over the tow line, to my best knowledge. However, the line parted during the turn. You say you were distracted by AA bursts. Did anything else distract you? Not that I recall. Were you engaged in reprimanding a signalman named Urban at length for having his shirt tail out while your ship was turning 360 degrees? Who says that? <laughs> Keith again? Will you answer the question, Commander? It's a malicious lie, of course. Was Urban on the bridge at the time? Yes. Was his shirt tail out? Yes, and I reprimanded him. That took me about two seconds. I'm not in the habit of dwelling on those things. Then there were those AA bursts, and that was what distracted me. Did you point out these AA bursts to the officer of the deck or the exec? I may have. I don't recall. I didn't run weeping to my OOD on every occasion. I may very well have kept my own counsel. And since this shirt tail thing has been brought up, I'd like to say that Ensign Keith, as morale officer, was in charge of enforcing uniform regulations and completely soldiered on the job. When I took over the ship, it was like the Chinese Navy. And I bore down on Keith to watch those shirt tails. And for all I know, that's another reason he hated me and circulated all this about my cutting the tow line. Did you drop a yellow dye marker off Jacob Island on the first morning of the invasion of Kwajalein? I may have. I don't recall. Do you recall what your first mission was during the invasion? To lead a group of attack boats to the line of departure for Jacob Island. Did you fulfill that mission? Yes. Why did you drop the dye marker? <laughs> I don't know for sure that I did drop one. Maybe I dropped one to mark the line of departure plainly. How far was the line of departure from the beach? As I recall, a thousand yards. Commander, didn't you run a mile ahead of the attack boats, drop your dye marker more than half a mile short, and retire at high speed, leaving the boats to grope their way to the line of departure as best they could? The question is abusive and flagrantly leading. I'm willing to withdraw the question in view of the commander's dim memory and proceed to more recent events. Commander Quig, in view of the implications in this line of testimony, I urge you to search your memory for correct answers. I am certainly trying to do that, sir, but these are very small points. I, I've been through several campaigns since Kwajalein and the typhoon and now all this business. I appreciate that. It will facilitate justice if you can remember enough to give a few definite answers on points of fact. First of all, were those boats on the line of departure when you turned away from the beach? As near as I could calculate, yes. In that case, Commander, if they were already on the line, what purpose did the die marker serve? Well, uh, you might say a safety factor. Just another added mark. Now, maybe I erred in being overcautious and making sure they knew where they were. But then again, sir, I've always believed you can't err on the side of safety. Did you have the con? As I recall now, Lieutenant Merrick had the con. And I now recall I had to caution him for opening the gap too wide between us and the boats. How wide? I can't say, but... At one point, there was definitely too much open water, and I called him aside and I admonished him not to run away from the boats. Didn't you direct him to slow down when you saw the gap widening? 
Well, but it was all happening very fast. And I may have been watching the beach for a few seconds. And, and then I saw we were running away. So and so that's why I dropped the marker to compensate for Merrick's running away from the boats. These are your factual recollections, Commander. Those are the facts, sir. Resume your examination. Commander Quig, did you make it a practice during invasions to station yourself on the side of the bridge that was sheltered from the beach? That's an insulting question, and the answer is no. I had to be on all sides of the bridge at once, constantly moving from one side to the other because Merrick was navigator and Keith was my OOD at general quarters, and both of them were invariably scurrying to the safe side of the bridge. So I was captain and navigator and OOD all rolled in one, and that's why I had to move constantly from one side of the bridge to the other. And that's the truth. Whatever lies may have been said about me in this court... The court will question the witness. Sir, the witness is obviously and understandably agitated by this ordeal, and I request a recess to give him a breathing space. I am not in the least agitated, and I'm glad to answer any and all questions here. And in fact, I demand a chance to set the record straight on anything derogatory to me in the testimony that's gone before. I did not make a single mistake in 15 months aboard the cane, and I can prove it, and my record has been spotless until now, and I don't want it smirched by a whole lot of lies and distortions by disloyal officers. Commander, would you like a recess? Definitely not. I request there be no recess if it's up to me. Very well. I simply want to ask, if the performance of these two officers was so unspeakably bad, why did you tolerate it? Why didn't you beach them? Or at least rotate them to less responsible battle stations? Well, sir, strange as it may seem, the fact is I am a very soft-hearted guy. Uh, not many people know that. I never despaired of training those two men up and making naval officers of them. I kept them under my eye just because I wanted to train them up. The last thing I wanted to do was wreck their careers. Not that they had any similar concern for me, either of them. Defense counsel. Commander, on the morning of 18 December, at the moment you were relieved, was the cane in the last extremity? It certainly was not. Was it in grave danger at that moment? Absolutely not. I had that ship under complete control. Did you ever indicate to your other officers that it had been your intention to change course and come north at 10 o'clock or 15 minutes after Merrick did? Yes, I did make that statement and such had been my intention. Why did you intend to abandon fleet course commander if the ship wasn't in danger? Well, I don't see any inconsistency there. I've repeatedly stated in my testimony that my rule is safety first. As I say, the ship wasn't in danger, but a typhoon is still a typhoon. And I just about decided that we do as well coming around to north. I might have executed my intention at 10 o'clock, and then again, I might not have. Then Merrick's decision to come north was not a panicky, irrational blunder? His panicky blunder was relieving me. I kept him from making any disastrous mistakes thereafter. I didn't intend to vindicate myself at the cost of all the lives on the cane. Commander Quig, have you read Lieutenant Merrick's medical log? 
Oh, yes, I have read that interesting document. Yes, sir, I have. It is the biggest conglomeration of lies and distortions and half-truths I've ever seen. And I'm extremely glad you asked me because I want to get my side of it all on the record. Please state your version or any factual comments on the episodes in the log, sir. Okay. Now, starting right with that strawberry business, the real truth is that I was betrayed and thrown and double-crossed by my executive officer and this precious gentleman, Mr. Keith, who between them corrupted my wardroom so that I was one man against the whole ship without any support from my officers. Okay. Now, you, you take that <laughs> strawberry business. Why, if there wasn't a case of outright conspiracy to protect a malefactor from justice, Merrick carefully leaves out the little fact that I had conclusively proved by a process of elimination that someone had a key to the icebox. He said it was the steward's mates who ate the strawberries. But if I wanted to take the trouble, I could prove to this court geometrically that they couldn't have. It's the water business all over again. Like, wait, the crew was taking baths seven times a day, and our evaps were definitely on the fritz half the time, and I was trying to inculcate the simplest principles of water conservation. But no, Mr. Merrick, the hero of the crew, wanted to go right on Molly coddling them. And, and oh, you, you, you take the coffee business. No, no, wait, wait, the, 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 the strawberry thing first. Uh, it all hinged on a thorough search for the key. And that was where Mr. Merrick, as usual, with the help of Mr. Keith, fudged it. Just went through a lot of phony motions that proved nothing. Like, like I was uh, the, the, the thinking, the, the incessant burning out of silexes, which were government property, was a joke. Which was the attitude of everybody from Merrick down. No sense of responsibility, though I emphasized over and over that the war wouldn't last forever. That all these things would have to be accounted for. It was a constant battle. Always the same thing. Merrick and Keith undermining my authority. Always arguments, though I personally liked Keith. And I, I kept trying to train him up only to get stabbed in the back with, okay, uh, uh, I, I, I think I've, I've, I've covered the strawberry business and, uh, what else? Uh, there was so much tripe in that precious log of Mr. Merrick. Oh, 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 yes, the movie business, Kay. No, respect for command was the whole trouble with that ship. And the movie operator, who had a disrespectful, surly manner anyway, blithely started the movie without waiting for the arrival of the commanding officer. And out of that whole ship's crew, officers and men, did one person call a halt or even notice that the captain wasn't present? I missed those movies more than they did, but I banned them. And by God, I'd do it again. What was I supposed to do? Issue letters of commendation to all of them for this gratuitous insult to the commanding officer? Not that I took it personally. It was the principle, the principle of respect for command. That principle was dead when I came aboard that ship, but I brought it to life, and I nagged, and I crabbed, and I bitched, and I hollered, but by God, I made it stick while well, I was the captain, and, and as I say, it was a matter of respect. When I ask a sailor a question, I want a straight answer, and nobody's going to get away with shifty evasions if I have to hold a court of inquiry for a week. What do I care for strawberries? It was a question of principle. Pilfering is pilfering. And on my ship, 
Not that we had so many treats either. With those slow motion mess treasurers of ours, not like one, I was a man said, believe me, they made me jump sure enough. When we did get something pleasant like strawberries once in a blue moon, it was an outrage not to have another helping if I felt like it. And I wasn't going to let them get away with that. And I didn't, by God, there was no more of that again on that ship. And so as I say... Uh, hey, uh, how many of these things have I covered? I, I, I can only do this roughly from memory, but you ask me specific questions and I'll tackle them one by one. It was a very thorough and complete answer, Commander. Thank you. May I have Exhibit 12? Thank you. Commander, I show you an authenticated copy of a fitness report you wrote on Lieutenant Merrick, dated 1 July 1944. Do you recognize it as such? Yes. By that date, had the following incidents already occurred? The water shortage, the Silex investigation, the suspension of movies, among others? Well, by then, yes, I think. Please read to the court your comment of 1 July on Lieutenant Merrick. Naturally not being vindictive. I, I don't write down every single thing. A fitness report goes into a man's record. And I, 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 I try to go easy. I always have. I always will. I appreciate that, sir. Please read your comment. This officer has, if anything, improved in his performance of duty since the last fitness report. He is consistently loyal, unflagging, thorough, courageous, and efficient. He is considered at present fully qualified for command of a 1,200-ton DMS. His professional zeal and integrity set him apart as an outstanding example for other officers, reserve and regular alike. He cannot be too highly commended. He is recommended for transfer to the regular Navy. Thank you, Commander. No further questions. No cross-examination. Your excuse, Commander. Defense rests. Is the judge advocate ready to present his argument? Sir, I believe I'll waive the argument. No argument at all? If it please the court, I'm at a loss to discuss the case the defense has presented. I have nothing to refute. It's no case at all. It has nothing to do with the charge or the specification. The defense counsel's very first question in this trial was, Commander, have you ever heard the expression Old Yellowstone? That was the key to his entire strategy, which was simply to twist the proceedings around so that the accused would become not Merrick, but Commander Quee. 
He's dragged out every possible vicious and malicious criticism of the commander from the other witnesses and forced Queeg to defend himself against them in open court on the spur of the moment, without advice of counsel, without any of the normal privileges and safeguards of an accused man under naval law. Can this court possibly endorse the precedent that a captain who doesn't please his underlings can be deposed by them? and that the captain's only recourse afterward is to be placed on the witness stand at a general court-martial to answer every petty gripe and justify all his command decisions to a hostile lawyer taking the part of his insubordinate inferiors. Such a precedent is nothing but a blank check for mutiny. It is the absolute destruction of the chain of command. However, all this doesn't worry me, sir. I'm confident that this court hasn't been impressed by such shyster tactics. I know the court is going to reject this cynical play on its emotions, this insult to its intelligence, and find the specification proven by the facts. I've only this to say, sir. Whatever the verdict of the accused, I formally recommend that Defense Counsel Greenwald be reprimanded by this court for conduct unbecoming an officer of the Navy, and that this reprimand be made part of his record. Defense Counsel, closing argument. Please the court, I undertook the defense of the accused very reluctantly and only at the urging of the judge advocate that no other defense counsel was available. I was reluctant because I knew that the only possible defense was to show in court the mental incompetence of an officer of the Navy. It has been the most unpleasant duty I, that I've ever had to perform. Once having undertaken it, I did what I could to win an acquittal. I thought this was my duty, both as defense counsel appointed by the Navy and as a member of the bar. Let me make one thing clear. It is not, and never has been, the contention of the defense that Commander Quig is a coward. The entire case of the defense rests on the assumption that no man who rises to command of a United States naval ship can possibly be a coward, and that therefore, if he commits questionable acts under fire, the explanation must lie elsewhere. The court saw the bearing of Captain Quig on the stand. The court can picture what his bearing must have been at the height of a typhoon. On that basis, the court will decide the fate of the accused. Before recessing, the court will rule on the recommendation to reprimand. Lieutenant Greenwald. Yes, sir. Lieutenant, this has been a strange and tragic trial. You have conducted your case with striking ingenuity. The judge advocate's remark about shyster tactics was an unfortunate personal slur, but your conduct has been puzzling, and it does raise questions. With talent goes responsibility. Has your conduct here been responsible, Lieutenant Greenwald? The reprimand, if there's to be one, must come from your own conscience. Counsel's words and acts are privileged within the broad limits of contempt of court. Court finds defense counsel has not been in contempt. Recommendation to reprimand denied. Recess. What happens now? That's the ball game. When do we find out? If it's an acquittal, you'll find out in an hour or so. If it isn't, they may not publish the findings for weeks. Meantime, would I be confined? No, hardly. What do you think? I'd stick around for an hour or so. You were terrific. Thanks. You murdered Queeg. Yes, I murdered him.
I'm grateful to you, win or lose. Okay. What's the matter? Not a thing. You bothered by what Shalee said? Or Blakely? Why should I be? I had a job to do. I did it. That's all. That's a spirit. Look, I want to ask your advice. What now? Tom Kiefer's throwing a party tonight at the Fairmont Hotel. This morning he got a thousand buck check, advance on his novel. Bully for him. I hope he sells a million copies and wins the Pulitzer Prize, the Nobel Prize, and the Congressional Medal of Honor, and gets his bust in the Hall of Fame. That'll wrap this thing up in a pink ribbon. We're both invited to the party. What? Well, I, I know what you probably think, but hell, one way or another it's all over. I don't know what I'd have done in Tom's place. You'd go to Kiefer's party? Tom's always called me a good-natured slob. I'll go if you will, if you think we should. All right. Maybe we'll both go and help Mr. Kiefer celebrate. Quiet, quiet, quiet. Shh. All right, all right. Shh. Quiet, you drunken bums of the cane. Here he is, the guest of honor, Phil Glasses, a toast to the conquering hero. Greenwald, the magnificent, the man who won the acquittal. <laughs> Party's pretty far along, hey? A toast, I say, to Lieutenant... Make it rhyme, Tom, like you did at the ship's party. Yes, yes, that's right. Right. Toast to rhyme. He makes them up as he goes along. You've never heard anything like it. Come on, Tom. Rhymes. Rhymes. <laughs> oh, I'm a bit drunk to be doing Thomas the Rhymer tonight. But to honor this great man, I'll try my best. Fill your glasses, I say. To Lieutenant Barney Greenwald, who fought with might and main. The terror of Judge Advocates, the massive legal brain. Who hit the Navy where they lived and made it writhe with pain? Who sees through brass and gold stripes like so much cellophane? The man who licked the regulars right on their own terrain, who wrought the great deliverance for the galley slaves of the cane, <laughs> and gave us all the fifth freedom. Freedom! From old Yellowstone. Speech, Barney, speech. Speech, speech. No, no, no. I I'm drunker than any of you. I've been out drinking with a judge advocate, trying to get him to take back some of the dirty names he called me. Finally got him to shake hands on the ninth whiskey sour. Maybe the tenth. Well, that's good. Had to talk loud and fast, Steve. I played pretty dirty pool, you know, in court. Poor Jack Shalee. What's this, a cake? It's a double celebration. Cake baked like a book. A thousand bucks came in the mail today. Advance on my novel. Very nice. Multitudes, Multitudes by Thomas Kiefer. I got something in the mail, too. What, Barney? Medical okay. Got orders back to my squadron. Sailing tomorrow. thousand bucks guess i ought to return the celebrated author's toast at that little speech 
Thanks for that elegant poem, Mr. Kiefer. War novel, isn't it? What else? I assume you give the Navy a good pasting. I don't think public relations would clear it at any rate. Someone should show up these stodgy, stupid Prussians. Who's a hero? You? Well, any resemblance, you know, is purely accidental. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, I'm warped and I'm drunk, but it suddenly seems to me that if I wrote a war novel, I'd try to make a hero out of old Yellowstone. (laughs) 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 No, I'm serious. I would. Tell you why. Tell you how I'm warped. I'm a Jew. Guess most of you know that. Jack Chalice said I used smart Jew lawyer tactics. Of course, he took it back, apologized after I told him a few things about the case he never knew. Well, anyway, the reason I'd make old Yellowstone a hero is on account of my mother. Little gray-headed Jewish lady. Fat. Well, sure, you guys all have mothers, but they wouldn't be in the same bad shape mine would if we'd have lost this war. See, the Germans aren't kidding about the Jews. They're cooking us down to soap over there. They think we're vermin and should be exterminated and our corpses turned into something useful. Granting the premise, being warped, I don't, but granting the premise, soap is as good an idea as any. But I just can't cotton to the idea of my mom melted down to a bar of soap. What's all this got to do with old Yellowstone? Now, I'm coming to old Yellowstone, coming to him. See, Mr. Kiefer, while I was studying law and you were writing your short stories for national magazines, why, all that time, these birds we call regulars, they were standing guard on this fat, dumb, and happy country of ours. Of course, they were doing it for dough, same as everybody does what they do. So when all hell broke loose and the Germans started running out of soap and figured, well, time to come over and melt down old Mrs. Greenwald, who's going to stop him? Not her boy Barney can't stop a Nazi with a law book, so I dropped the law books and ran to learn how to fly. Stout fellow. Meantime, and it took a year and a half before I was any good, who was keeping Mama out of the soap dish? Tom Kiefer? Communication school. Willie Keith? <laughs> Midshipman school. Old Yellowstone, maybe? Why, yes. Even poor, sad Queeg. And most of them not sad at all, fellas. A lot of them sh- sharper boys than any of us. Don't kid yourself. You can't be good in the Army or Navy unless you're goddamn good. Though maybe not up on Proust and Finnegan's Wake and all. Barney, forget it. It's all over. Let's enjoy the dinner. Steve, this dinner's a phony. You're guilty. Of course, you're only half guilty. There's another guy who stayed very neatly out of the picture. The guy who started the whole idea that Quig was a dangerous paranoiac who argued you into it for half a year, who invented the nickname Old Yellowstone, who kept feeding you those psychiatry books, who pointed out Article 184 and kept hammering it at you. Now, wait a minute. Oh, had to drag it out of Steve, Mr. Kiefer. Big dumb fisherman tried to tell me it was all his own idea. Doesn't know the difference between a paranoid and an anthropoid, but you knew. Told him his medical log was a clinical picture of a paranoid. Advised him to go to Halsey. Offered to go with him. Didn't get cold feet till you stood outside Halsey's cabin on the New Jersey. Then ducked and been ducking ever since. I don't know where you got all this, but... Biggest favor you could have done for Steve so far as winning an actual acquittal went, though I doubt you realized it. But if there's a guilty party at this table, it's you. 
If you hadn't filled Merrick's thick head full of paranoia in Article 184, why, he'd have got Queeg to come north, or he'd have helped the poor bastard pull through to the south, and the cane wouldn't have been yanked out of action in the hottest part of the war. That's your contribution to the good old USA, my friend, pulling a minesweeper out of the South Pacific when it was most needed. That and multitudes, multitudes. Just a minute. You're really drunk. Excuse me. I'm all finished, Mr. Kiefer. Give me a glass. I'm up to the toast. Thank you. Here's to you. You went out to Quig and got him. You kept your own skirts all white and starchy. You'll publish your novel proving that the Navy stinks, and you'll make a million dollars and marry Hedy Lamar. So you won't mind a little verbal reprimand from me, huh? I defended Steve because I found out the wrong guy was on trial. Only way I could defend him was to murder Queeg for you. I'm sore that I was pushed into that spot and ashamed of what I did, and that's why I'm drunk. Queeg deserved better at my hands. I owed him a favor, don't you see? He stopped Herman Goering from washing his fat ass with my mother. So I'm not going to eat your dinner, Mr. Kiefer, or drink your wine, but simply make my toast and go. Here's to you, mister, the Kane's favorite author, and here's to your book. Oh, my God! You can wipe for the rest of your life, mister. You'll never wipe off that yellow stain. Yeah. See you in Tokyo, you mutineer. That was the Kane Mutiny Court Martial, a special radio production originally broadcast on the BBC's Sunday Night Theatre in 1958. Adapted for radio from novelist Herman Wook's stage play. This presentation for Sonic Summerstock 2022 was directed and produced by Pete Lutz and featured the following Narada Radio Company players. Les Marsden as Captain Queeg, Dana Gonzalez as Lieutenant Marig, Austin Hanna as Lieutenant Junior Grade Keith. Tom Conkle as Lieutenant Kiefer. Carl Yao as Lieutenant Commander Charlie. Chuck Wilson as Captain Southern. Joe Martinez as Dr. Lundine. Paul Arbisi as Dr. Bird. Rachel Pulliam as Petty Officer Urban and John Bell as Captain Blakely. With Jessica Matthews as the stenographer. Ebony Rose as the orderly and Pete Lutz as Lieutenant Greenwald. Gareth Seven speaking. This was a 63 Audio production in association with the Mutual Audio Network, mixed and mastered in Corpus Christi, Texas, USA. Thank you for listening, and we hope you'll enjoy the other old-time radio recreations being released for the 2022 Sonic Summerstock Playhouse.
63 audio. This is mutual. Thank you to Pete Lutz and the entire cast of the Narada Radio Company. And thank you all for joining us here for the Playhouse and our inaugural event. Make sure you get your seats for next week's performance here at the Summerstock Playhouse when we present a double feature. Our first act from Rachel Pulliam and Soul Twin Audio with the classic Turn of the Screw. And after our intermission, No Soap Radio graces our stage with The Jack Benny Show and returning from New York by plane. Until then, I'm David Alt. Good night from Halifax, Nova Scotia. And that concludes this week's performance of the Sonic Summerstock Playhouse. All productions, features, characters and scripts presented in the Playhouse belong strictly to their respective copyright holders and no copyright infringement is assumed or intended. The Sonic Summerstock Playhouse is part of the Sonic Society and a proud member of the Mutual Audio Network. And any shows that continue their run must receive express permission from all parties involved. Join us next week for another new classic. With thanks to our announcer, Jack Ward, I'm your host, David Alt. Good night. Jack Ward, and from all of us here at the Mutual Audio Network, we'd like to say thank you for making this our fourth season. With hundreds of original shows, we are the world's largest curated podcast and podcast family collection of audio drama and audio fiction, and it's all because of you. We couldn't be more grateful because it's here at Mutual where we listen and imagine together. <laughs>